Hey, where are you shopping for Pride Month accessories? Skip the rainbow washing at those big box stores and get your Pride gear from a small trans-owned business instead. We're partnering with MyPrideStore.net this June to spread the love for our LGBTQIA family. My Pride Store was founded by Andrea Saunders, who began this endeavor as a way to pay for her transition. Turns out what she thought was good insurance actually had a trans exclusion clause, so she had to pay out of pocket for her gender-affirming procedures. What started as a simple button shop on Etsy has grown to include all kinds of Pride-related products for your home and your closet. Make My Pride Store your Pride Store by going to MyPrideStore.net. Shipping is free in the U.S., over $40. That's MyPrideStore.net. Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hello, my name is Ashley. I am a content contributor with Feminist Book Club, and I am joined today by Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson. Kathleen is the author of three novels and co-wrote The Agathas with Liz Lawson, who is also a novelist. And they have, as I mentioned, co-wrote The Agathas, which is a young adult novel they are here to talk about us with. Kathleen and Liz, welcome to Feminist Book Club podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us, Ashley. Thank you. So my first question is, what is your definition of feminism? Liz, do you want to go first? <laughs> <laughs> Kathleen loves to do that. Um, let's see. My definition of feminism, that is a question I have not thought about for a long time. Um I would say really, I mean, my definition would be, this is a hard question, um, allowing women to, or not allowing, but women having, you know, being equals in all fields across the board. <laughs> I'm not answering this well, Kathleen. Equal rights are human rights. We all deserve our rights. Yes. No one yes. is a lesser citizen. And, uh, you know, some not good stuff is happening and I can't believe we're like rolling back uh, the clock, but equal rights are human rights. Yes. The, you know, the beauty of that question is there is no one Merriam and Webster definition. It is feminism has absolutely evolved. That's what we strive to do at Feminist Book Club to show how that word has evolved and it's a human movement. So it's, you know, for you, Liz, to not feel like you had a specific definition, that's it. That's absolutely fine as well. You know, it's, it's evolving and as it should be, but yes, unfortunately, in many ways we are regressing, but what is not regressing is the Agathas. What is this novel about? The Agathas is about two teenage girls. They're unlikely partners and they team up to solve the crime of what happened to Brooke Donovan in their sleepy coastal town of Castle Cove. They're very much opposites. And so, you know, good cop, bad cop kind of relationship. And one of the deeper mysteries in the book is how Alice and Iris 
ultimately become friends and what secrets they might be keeping from each other? It's a, a dual POV. Um, Kathleen and I both wrote one of the POVs. Um, I was Alice and Kathleen is Iris. Um, and like Kathleen said, it really ultimately is a story of friendship, I think, although there is a lot of fun along the way and also murder, which is a strange combination, but I think we managed to balance the two well. The character of Alice is a big Agatha Christie fan. And so it's her idea to use some tips and um, tricks from Christie novels to start investigating uh, the disappearance of Brooke Donovan. So that really kickstarts the book. A map prefaces the story. What does the map say before we even read a word of the novel? First of all, I love the map. I've always wanted to write a book that has a map in it. Every writer um, wants a map. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I think that the map really uh, shows the reader that Castle Cove, which is the town uh, where the story takes place, is a fully a character in the book. And the geography of the town is important. It definitely shows readers what places in the town are important to the story, um, as well as enabling people to really um, get a good grasp of where they are geographically related to each other. And I think because the book um, deals a lot in class and socioeconomic differences, like you're either, as Iris says in the book, you're either the served or the server in Castle Cove. It lets you know, I think the map really elucidates that because you see where the people with money live and how big their houses are. And then where the people who don't have a lot of money live like in apartment buildings over on, you know, the not great part of town. You see the yacht club, but you also see Dottie's Donuts, a little tiny coffee shop that sells donuts. And you see Seaside Skate, which is where the teens who don't have a lot of money usually hang out and go roller skating. While the kids who do have money have like bonfires and big parties at their mansions. And so I think it really helps you get a, a big sense of like the divide between people in the book as well. And between the main characters as well and how that brings them ultimately together, but it wouldn't have in a way because their class stratas are so different. Mm -hmm. Yes, very much so. So when Iris first visits Alice's house, she's amazed at how beautiful and big and airy it is, but also how cold it is. Mm -hmm. All of the pictures of Alice on the wall are like professional portraits. And she even did like modeling as a child. And she's almost treated as an object, I think, um, for her parents. And then when Alice visits Iris's house, she's kind of comforted by the smallness and the coziness and the watercolors on the wall that Iris did. And it seems so warm and homey to her. And, and I think that, um, I think it was important to Liz and I to show how these two girls could bridge that divide and become friends as well and how they could each kind of come to admire each other's lives and differences. Yes. So you, you both, so Liz, you said that you wrote Alice and Kathleen, you said you wrote Iris. How did the two of you decide the voice for each character and to bring them together? Um, we started with Alice. Our jumping off point was sort of, we both find the dis the disappearance of Agatha Christie, which is, um, sorry, my cat is just, will not get out of my face. Um, <laughs> 
we we both have always been fascinated, I think, by the um, by Agatha Christie's disappearance, which happened, you know, almost 100 years ago now, but still has never quite been solved. Uh, after Agatha Christie found out her first husband was cheating on her, she disappeared for uh, over a week and no one could find her like a, the entire country had like a manhunt trying to figure out where she had gone. And she was discovered in a hotel in London, checked in uh, under her husband's mistress's name. Uh, and so Kathleen and I both, you know, it's, it's a kind of incredible story, particularly because, you know, she's Agatha Christie was a mystery writer. She created this mystery around herself. And so we sort of jumped off from there. Alice at the very beginning of the book is on house arrest after disappearing over the summer for five days. And so, you know, we knew that that was going to be a key part of her character. And so her voice kind of was shaped around that because she had to be someone who would do something like that and have the voice of someone who, who would do something like that. Right. And, you know, I, I love that Agatha Christie anecdote because I like thinking about the fact that when that happened, you know, they only had newspapers. So it was a story that unfolded day by day and you had to wait until the next day to find out what did they find anything and it had to be a story and there's a picture. And it isn't like now where if something like that happened, it would immediately be like on Twitter and you'd be sharing it. There would be like updates every five minutes. And so it, it became a, you know, a myth and a story in its own right. And Alice using that anecdote to disappear on her own, I think is really a great point to start the book because she doesn't tell anyone where she went or what happened to her or why she went. And I, I think that that's another underlying mystery in the book. And it's a good springing off point for the story of Brooke Donovan's disappearance because initially the police think that Brooke is just being a copycat of what Alice Ogilvy did in the summer because they're going to dismiss it as just teen girls being overly emotional, you know, trying to get back at their boyfriends and running away. And so there's a, there's a, a very clear uh, strain of misogyny in the book toward women and girls in general. And Alice and Brooke have a falling out. Mm -hmm. So there is also this drama between the two of them that could be relegated as just high school girls having drama, but there's something really real between them because they were best friends. Alice was a part of that group of girls, but now she's not. And just try and have her understand what she went through over the summer and then what she's now enduring with her former best friend having been murdered. Okay, let's just take a real quick poll here. So if your boyfriend dumped you and started dating your best friend, is that okay for your bestie to date him? Or should your bestie be like, no, no, she was my best friend. I mean, what is your opinion here? I, I mean, dudes are, <laughs> dudes are, dudes are uh, hands off. I just feel like it, I even on my worst enemy, which I don't think I have in this lifetime. Um, yeah, that's not my spiel. I'd rather just be single. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Me, me, too. me too. So the media is a pivotal part of the story. I appreciated the Castle Cove Gazette giving a mid-story recap which I think readers needed yeah. of what everything that was going on. 
what did you what did y'all want media to have as a role in the story? I think that for us, it, it functioned as a way to catch readers up, like in a very quick, contained way. Like, okay, here's where we are right now. Here's the info you need to know. And then, as I said earlier, I mean, that's the way we function now as a society when we're getting our news, like everything is very immediate. So we wanted to have like that sense of immediacy, like breaking news. And it was just, it was also just fun for us to write because sometimes we would get tired. And then Liz or I would say, you know what, let's just put a breaking news in here. Or maybe we'll just do like a text conversation. So I think that Liz would agree in some ways it was a little bit of a a writerly trick as well. For sure. And I, but I think we also wanted, um, so my debut has a lot to do with the media. It's about the aftermath of a school shooting and how in the book, I, you know, thought a lot while I was writing it, I thought a lot about how the media handles events like that, like a school shooting or a murder of a teenage girl. And like, it gets sensationalized a bit. And I think that incorporating the media into this book was important because of that. You know, there is like a central reporter who is really helpful to them in a lot of ways, but, you know, the way that the media reports on things and like, and just how they like break news even before relatives might know is, is just, you know, I think that is an interesting thing to include in a book about a girl, like a, particularly a teenage girl's murder. And one who is a heiress of sorts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that adds another element to it of the, what can be sensationalized and what can be, just we have to have the breaking news story, even if all the facts aren't together, which is such a part of our society today, as far as the news goes. Absolutely. And how easily you can manipulate media to your benefit. And I mean, Alice and Iris do that with Dottie and some other people in the book where, you know, they're going to, they're going to, manip- they're going to use people to manipulate the media to get information and to sway things. And that is absolutely something that happens. Absolutely. So there's a quote in the book that says solace is an elusive thing. What does that mean? Was that like one of the Christie quotes or did we actually write that? Liz? I feel I like I probably wrote that. <laughs> actually, actually it, it is a, it is a Christie quote. Oh. There's, there's, there's um, a bunch of, that's how like the chapter essentially yeah. begins. Yeah, I, had to, yeah. I had to gather myself, but okay. What did that mean for the story? Solace is an elusive thing. Why choose that for the novel? I'm trying to remember what chapter that was on. I was the one who chose the quotes and I did it very carefully. It was an interesting process because I wanted each one to really match what was happening in that particular chapter. Um, Can you remind me what chapter that starts? Do you know off the top of your head? Not (laughs) off the top of my head, but I just, I was curious I feel like Liz you probably chose it because you know neither of them is ever going to know solace in its true form like even if even if you rectify a situation or whatever you were looking for you found you're Mm -hmm. never going to actually know peace that is true right I mean you can't like Alice can't because her friend died oh you know what Okay, Kathleen, I just looked it up and it is in one of your chapters. You wrote it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> unsurprisingly, I was like, that sounds like Kathleen. 
Um, and it is, is Lillian at the very end of the book, Lillian yeah. writing to Iris. So Lillian Levy is Brooke Donovan's very, very rich grandmother. And she has had, as we mentioned briefly in the book, a lot of tragedy in her own life. And I think that what she is trying to tell the girls in that moment is that you, like I said, you are never going to know peace. You, you're going to lose people. You're going to find answers to questions that you never thought would have answers but it's not, it's not going to bring you peace. And you really just have to learn to live with that discomfort. I just want to appreciate the authors for solving a mystery <laughs> on a podcast. I think this is a first. You know, I <laughs> made feminist book club. I made this, I made this tweet before this interview where I said, Oh, look, Liz Lawson and I are about to do an interview and we will forget everything we wrote in this book. Congrats to us. And so <laughs> it's just a thing that happens. We're like, what? Did we said that? I don't know. Did we? I know. <laughs> Plus, when you, you know, when you're writing a book, you revise it so many times that you have different versions in your head of the book. So it can get a little confusing after a while. Yeah. So the screen names were really fun. I, 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 think as many people grew up in the AOL instant messenger era. So just screen names were just as a way of being creative. Um, how did you all decide the screen names, especially for the social media era? We had a lot of fun with those. Yeah. Um, we actually took a couple in, we took some inspiration from people that we know in real life. One of yeah. them is actually our editor's name, which mm-hmm. she thought was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and then a few others are like people that we know in real life. Um, and then it was just really fun to be creative with them. Kathleen and I always talk about how I think TikTok is kind of the new yeah. um, AOL in terms of like really creative screen names. And we always talk about how funny some of the names that we see are. And I, I, I think we kind of just pulled from there. Um, I think, yeah, we, I mean, we use some some people from real life, you know, just like a little dedication and homage because you should do that. Definitely. definitely. And one of the people that we picked is just always prickly about people like name dropping him. Why didn't you mention me? So we did that, you know, out of spite and, but the rest of the names, it's like, well, what would your name be? I mean, cause we're assuming these are mostly teenagers or disgruntled adults who are making these posts. And so, you know, you look around, you look at some of the people who follow you and you're like, what does that name mean? Do you really want that to be your screen? How did it? And so they're amazing. It was a lot of fun. And it was also, it can also be like a little tedious sometimes having to like retype that whole screen name on another line. But it, I, there were definitely elements of this book that we had just so much fun writing and thinking about when people would read it because we wanted this book to be a series of twists and turns and sometimes outlandish shenanigans and have the girls, you know, not be very good at their jobs because they don't really know how to be detectives yet, but also have threads of real life issues in the book, like domestic abuse and dating violence. So I feel like, I feel like we did a good job, Liz. I do too. Y'all did. And speaking of those those experiences, I appreciated that the back of the book did have, does have um, resources. So it's not just, this is what's being discussed. It's a way to support either your friends or your peers or someone you may know to have those. So I appreciate that. Yeah. I think that was really important to me to have those in there because 
I don't know that they're often in there for mystery novels. And I mean, mystery novels as a whole really deal with some really uh, painful subjects when you think about it. And, you know, we're writing for young adults primarily, and some of them might be going through things that uh, Brooke went through or Alice went through or what Iris is going through. And I, and they might see themselves in that character and those resources might be a balm to them to know that they can, there's a place where they could get help or reach out. So just as much as we talked about screen names and the media and just social media in general, Agatha Christie is generational as much as she is global. Right. What does the, what does she mean to y'all? And what does the story, what does she mean to the story? I mean, I grew up reading Agatha Christie books. She was like, definitely foundational in terms of me discovering I guess adult books is how I would say it. You know, her books are are for adults, but they they aren't so heavy and so gory that I think um, like a teenager would be unable to read it or disturbed by them. So I read a lot of them when I was in my teens, and I was just so inspired by her, the longevity of her works, um, the fact that people still read and talk about them and remake them. And, you know, and then there were none has been revamped numerous times over the years, like different retellings. And it's just incredible when you think about the fact that she lived like over a hundred years ago. And I think for our book, you know, she was, she's the number one most best-selling author ever. And she didn't have it easy. A lot of the time, I think, you know, her first husband wasn't very supportive of her writing career. He was really competitive with her Then he cheated on her and essentially told her that he wanted to get engaged while they were still, she was still married to him. And, you know, I think that we just thought the fact that all of those facts combined with the, the disappearance, it's kind of, she's kind of a badass in a lot of ways. I think too that, you know, part of what I like about Alice loving Agatha Christie books is, you know, when you're younger and you read books, like you often, you, you enter a world that you didn't think was possible that completely envelops you. And I think that her books do that for a lot of people. And sometimes you, you figure out the ways that you want to live your life through books. And I think that Alice in this first book is really very much, in my opinion, it might not be Liz's opinion, on her way to being a detective and the thing that she gets most from the books is that she's figuring out exactly what she wants to do with her life and taking inspiration from the detectives in Agatha Christie novels and so I think it's the characters really from Agatha Christie's books that draw me in and make me you know remember how much I loved books when I was a teenager and how I would latch onto a character and think well if that character did that I am going to do that in this particular situation in my life and see how it works. And I think that it all just factors into, you know, an immense love of reading and what literature can give to you as a reader and especially as a young person. And she's given us a lot, even though her genre was singular with it just being in mystery, she's given us a lot. Right. And I think it's amazing that she, you know, came from nothing. Wasn't she a nurse in World War I as well? She was. She has a really interesting backstory and she, I mean, she became the best-selling novelist of all time. 
and that's even amazing considering, you know, they had to use those typewriters at the time and not laptops. So let's all think about that for a while. Like happy tap, tap that like every day. I don't want a life without copy paste. I don't (laughs) know what that's like. So I, or any of those control buttons. So like a backspace, (laughs) if you made an error, you had to like white it or what? I don't even know how they had to start out. You had to start the page over, you know, because it was like carbon copies and then they would just go through and then you would have to retype the entire thing. And then they had mimeograph. And so it was really a process. So just to conclude, if you could attend a dance in pop culture, what would it be? A school dance in pop culture? Which one would you attend? You mean like that's been in a movie or something like that? A movie, a TV show, another book. What would you attend? I would probably think it was, would be uh, fascinating to attend a dance in like the movie She's All That or something <laughs> like that. Like a 90s where all of a sudden people are like dancing in sync, even though they haven't practiced, you know, (laughs) that sort of prom that does not exist in real life. Right. (laughs) I think that's a really, like, I've never, ever been asked that question before. And that is a really super interesting question. And what I'm going to say off the top of my head is like the movies that are based on like Jane Austen novels, where they're all, they're doing those, they have those very elegant dances and they do like this little formal bows and then they back away and then they join another person when they come down the line and everything is so perfect and and practiced and like very romantic and fingertips touching and you know stolen looks yes over like in Bridgerton yeah like I like I like those types of things yes dressing up and yeah the the formality of it and a gown and you know that you know everyone looks beautiful and everyone's dressed like, you know, the finest they have ever been. And it's all very special. And so, I mean, probably one of those dances, even though I'm a klutz. And so I would totally take down the whole line because I would trip over my sneaker, which I would probably be wearing under my ball gown. Um, I would still like to take part until they kick me out. So as we start to conclude the conversation, what was it like to work on the book together? Liz was awful. She's like a complete control freak. And like, I could not write a line without her trying to edit it. And oh, I'm still recovering. (laughs) Well, thanks, Kathleen. I guess I know where I stand. (laughs) No, it was, it was, it was a joy for both of us because we wrote it in secret without anyone knowing we didn't have a book deal. And so it was just um, writing for the pure joy of writing and trying to draft this mystery which neither of us had ever written before and um we're we're both I think similar in temperament and writing style it was just I don't know it was just really it was easy I mean we had like some disagreements but everybody would and you have to have flexibility but it was all it was I mean it was just a joy to write this book with Liz I would always I would love to write another Agatha's book with Liz please do (laughs) Liz, how was it for you? Because I would always change things at the last minute. Like, it was you know. terrible. No, it was lovely. <laughs> Kathleen is so creative and it was just, it was just a wonderful experience to like, really to like, I mean, we got to know each other while we were writing it sort of, we knew each other, but not yeah. as well as we do now yeah. um, because now we pretty much talk every single day. Yeah. And um, you know, so that was, it was like kind of uh, while we were writing these two girls, 
falling into a friendship, we were falling into a friendship too. Yes. And, you know, there are little things like if we're, since it's dual POV, you have to have a lot of flexibility. Mm -hmm. So you can go into, Liz can go into my chapter and say, Alice wouldn't say it like this and change the line. So you have to be like, okay, that's fine. Because she knows Alice better than I know Alice, right? So you have to, if you're going to co-write with someone, you have to be very flexible and careful and you have to know what like the boundaries are because you're sharing this story. Yeah. And Joseph was our third collaborator because Joseph would show up. My cat. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So what bookstore or bookstores would you like our audience to buy the Agathas from? And what organization or platform would you like to amplify? I, well, first we need to say that it is a Barnes and Noble Noble exclusive edition. So if you want the pretty special lilac cover, you have to go to Barnes and Noble. But I have a local bookstore. I have two local bookstores. One is Antigone Books, which is the oldest feminist bookstore in the U.S. And the other is Mostly Books Arizona. And they're both independent bookstores. And I would encourage you to um, pre-order the book there or order it from them after it comes out. And I'd like to amplify the Trevor Foundation. Um, And for me, uh, the local bookstores are East City Bookshop in D.C., which is a just a lovely bookstore in Capitol Hill. Um, There's Hooray for Books in Alexandria, and then one more page um, in Arlington. And they're all uh, part of our pre-order campaign. And they're all indie bookstores that are super supportive of authors and just generally lovely to work with. And in terms of amplifying, uh, there is a small nonprofit in Philadelphia called Achievability, um, and it helps people find housing and jobs who have been struggling and I would like to amplify them. Kathleen and Liz, thank you for joining me on the Feminist Book Club podcast to talk about the Agathas. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, Red Woman is a dangerous creature, creature.